Hello, this is John Bueri, and welcome to another episode of Community Intelligence, where we explore how leaders engage and build community. For this episode, I met with Tanya Boykin, Chief Operating Officer of the Weingart Center, which provides transitional housing for those living on the streets of Skid Row in downtown Los Angeles. She's on the forefront of solving the homeless crisis in LA and shares a brief history of Skid Row and how she leveraged a long career in community development to help break this cycle of homelessness. So I'm sitting with Tanya Boykin, Chief Operating Officer at the Weingart Center, which has a uh, really deep history in Los Angeles, not just where we're sitting here, which is in Skid Row and the communities east of downtown Los Angeles, but across the city. I know that the Weingart Center is, is doing things for a lot of people in a lot of places, and I'm really looking forward to learning a bit about that work. But let's start, Tanya, with this mysterious place called Skid Row. Sure, so a little bit of a history lesson. Um, Skid Row has been around as long as we've been building railroads and actually creating Los Angeles. As the railroads were being built, as construction was taking place uh, here in Los Angeles, there were workers that came from all over the world and the country to do that work whether it was someone who was doing construction or actually physically building railroads. And so as a result, lots of the what we call SROs, single room occupancy hotels opened up, which there are uh, a, a tremendous amount here in this community um, to house those individuals. And often, you know, you're a guy or, uh, well, you would be a guy at that particular point so in history. Like a, we're talking 130, 150 years ago. 150 years ago. Yeah. These gentlemen, you know, they're away from their families, away from their loved ones. They get paid at the end of the day. They go out, they're drinking, they're having a great time. And so ultimately, some of those individuals really uh, landed on the skids. And so Skid Row, was really named because people ended up on the skids. At the same time that we saw this increase in individuals that were um, publicly inebriated, um, losing their jobs for one reason or another, social service providers, largely missions, churches, the Catholic Church, various groups, started to kind of pour into the community as well to provide service to these individuals. So the idea that this sort of happened, you know, in the 20 or 30 years ago is actually untrue. The reason that there are service providers in this community, the reason that there are so many of these single room hotels um, is because they served a purpose over some 150 years ago. And so the community the individuals who were um, on the skids, so to speak, have changed over time, but the service providers and the hotels stayed, and they ended up becoming um, a sort of a refuge for those who had fallen on hard times. So if you think about it, if you didn't have a job and didn't have a place to live, you could come to Skid Row and you can get a room for a night in a hotel. You could go across the street to a mission or a church and get a meal. Um, and, or you could meet with others who were talking about reforming their lives. So social service providers over time 
have evolved to continue to meet the needs of the changing population, which now um, are largely homeless individuals because there are still the services that are being provided, there are still the missions that are providing meals, um, and it's just grown. The reason that I think we've seen in a major increase in homelessness is because of these, what I call the sort of streaming factors that get people on the streets. So we have an educational system that isn't serving most of our community well. And when I say our community, I say California to be exact um, and Los Angeles specifically. Um, we have a foster care system that isn't working the way that I believe it was originally intended because one in three individuals that are going on to be on the streets now are foster youth who uh, turn 18. They haven't been given the skills that they need to be successful and so they come to the street. Wow. Um, we also have a lack of decent, quality, affordable housing for many people and that continues. So those kinds of issues sort of feed the spigot, if you will, of individuals falling down on their luck. So from where you sit, you're mm -hmm. one of those service providers you mentioned. Yes. What does it look like? How many people are here? Is it the same group of people? Do you see a rotation of people coming through? Um, do you see a, a stagnant population? Is it, is it really growing or is it just more visible, the numbers of people in Skid Row? And, and this is to acknowledge that you know, Los Angeles and the region of Southern California has a homelessness crisis going on. Absolutely. And that this may be viewed as perhaps one of the epicenters. Sure. Um, but this is not the only place this is By happening. By no means. Homelessness exists in every part of this city, um, the state, and I think other, you know, other states are experiencing the same thing, but the I think uh, after 2008, when we had a major economic decline, um, you had a group of folks who have been here for many years, and then you also saw people lose their homes, lose their jobs, um, be unable to provide for their kids, and uh, that is about our economy, our equity, and our equality that we are, you know, struggling with right now. Uh, that has increased the problem. You have, to answer your question, we don't see many transient people coming and going. We do see a pretty stable population. In fact, there are many in this city who believe that Skid Row is a community. I agree to a certain extent that it is a community because you have people who have formed relationships here, who have um, created a sense of family here. So in that uh, sense, yes, it's a community. But I also think it's a community unlike any other in the United States. And how so? Well, I think a typical community has um, bathrooms, showers, um, has resources for the population in typical communities. And I've been in affordable and permanent supportive housing for 35 years. So building a real community means that there are multiple economic levels of housing for people to live in. They don't currently exist here, although Many like us at the Weingar Center are working on that. Sanitation, policing, all the things that go into making a community that you or I grew up in 
don't really exist here. Well, let's pause there. We'll come back to that sure. for a second. But let's talk about the communities that you've built, because that's probably sure. part of the reason that you were both brought here and you were attracted to the area. Absolutely. Is that you're a community builder. Yes, I am. For 30 years, more mm -hmm. than 30 years. Mm -hmm. And I know that you're you're from Los Angeles, right? You grew up here. You went yes. to, uh, you're, you have many uh, levels of education from Los Angeles institutions. From all your years of experience building housing, from Mercy Housing, which you spent more than a decade. 17 years. 17 years. Mm -hmm. And that was across the state. Yes. It wasn't just in, in Southern California. Across the state and actually outside of the state as well. I, I did housing in Chicago, in Denver, um, all over. So when you're looking at building, and these are residential communities that you're building. That's correct. What is your approach to that as, a, as someone now with, with all this experience and all this, this education and... Um, passion for community and for housing people. What is the approach that you take when you say, okay, if we're going to build this community, it's not just four walls and a roof. Sure. What is it? What's the formula? I believe you have to find out what people want. So at its base, I think, having done this for so long, the overarching theme that I've experienced, whether it's in Los Angeles or in San Francisco, is individuals want a decent, quality place to live, they want an area for to raise their children that's safe. Um, they want opportunities. They don't want to live far away from home because that takes away from quality time of the things that really matter. So when I go into a community, I do a lot of on the ground meeting people. So wherever that site is, I fan out. I want to know who are the key stakeholders in the community. And when I say stakeholders, I'm not talking about your mayor or your uh, police officer. Who are they're they? important, but they're the people who've, they're Aunt Susie who's lived on the corner for 30 years. She has an opinion. She's been <laughs> a part of that community. It's the grocery store owner whose third generation family has been on that same corner for years. It's the kids in the neighborhood who have an opinion about what their quality of life should be. So I employ a variety of methods. Um, for example, in, in San Francisco, I had the privilege of working on one of the la largest public housing sites, the Sunnydale. So 40 years, institutional poverty, public housing, um, almost 1,800 individuals, um, literally over a 50-mile radius, huge. Wow. And um, I opened, I moved in, basically. I asked for one of the public housing units that was vacant. Um, they gave me that. And first, I hired individuals from the community to help me understand their neighborhood. Um, I hired kids to help me paint it. Um, I brought in furniture to make it feel like a home. Um, I had people come help me build a garden. And literally, it was me in the backyard of this place with a shovel. And neighbors walking up saying, what are you doing? Putting in a garden. There were no healthy food choices in the community. So rather than standing in front of one saying, there's no healthy food choices, what do you think? Let's put some in and let's share. Um, I opened my doors to the community. I had a big chalkboard wall with bright colored um, markers and I'd write a question of the day. 
and kids could walk in, get a piece of fruit, have some water, and talk to me. So let me just clarify, was this mm -hmm. a community center or were you actually living there? I didn't live there, it was a unit. A unit? Just like the units that everyone else lived in. Um, and so it wasn't con considered a community center. It was my office. It was it. me getting to know the community. And so you spent a lot of time there. You just weren't every sleeping day, there. Two and right. a half years <laughs> wow. from about nine in the morning till six or seven in the evening, understanding the community. And so I took that approach and asked a kid, where is it safe in your neighborhood? Well, it's not. And what do, okay. you do, what do you do with that information then? What do you do with that information is you build a community map. So when you're going to go into a community that side and you're going to put in lighting and you're going to look at schools and you're going to build housing and parks and places for people to play, you want to know where they should be. And you get buy-in. You get buy-in. You build community by asking those questions, by saying there are no wrong answers and I want to know what you think. So I'd say, I took the kids and gave them cameras and said, walk around your neighborhood and tell me what you like and you don't like. Take pictures, I will process those pictures and we'll throw them up on the wall and that's how we'll figure out where we build the community. So this is before cell phones. <laughs> before cell phones. Well, you know, you no, don't no, want to give a nine-year-old right. a cell phone. Right, right. But a disposable camera, absolutely. it's fun. So you have the potential for raising hopes. If, people, if you ask a question of someone, it's the work that we all, you know, this kind of work, you ask yeah. someone for their opinion, what you do with that answer is really valuable. So one thing is to map it and take it and use it as sort of a asset mapping or gap it's analysis. It's asset mapping, yes. But what happens when you've built that relationship? Someone says, yeah, this is unsafe, or this, someone says, yeah, we really need a new field or a new community garden, and you hear it over and over again, and you're like, and you believe. Sure. But you're not, you know, the printing money. You're, nope. You don't have unlimited resources. How do you handle the needs that sometimes uh, are greater than the resources available that you have at your disposal? Sure. That happens. Absolutely. Um, one, I think it's about managing expectations. So I have conversations like you and I are having that are real. Um, I don't promise what I can't deliver. And I manage that conversation by being very real. You want three square blocks of park, and I've heard that yeah, before, yeah. that isn't going to happen. But let's talk about what we can do. And I'm on your side, so I'm going to bring other people to the table who have that power. So for example, uh, back in Sunnydale, significant issues with the police, community uh, and the police department were at odds. So I had Saturday afternoons where I invited the police for donuts and coffee. Sounds a little cliche, but they came through the doors. The kids I was working with and the adults I was working with came through the doors and we had conversations about it. For the community, they saw me as a bridge builder, as someone who said, I can't solve everything, but I can give you a voice. I can teach you how to use that voice. I can put you in the room with the people who need to hear you. Um, and it starts with those small wins. When I work in communities, I usually hear from people, oh, they've told us this before. Right. You're here again. You're just you're the just, next in line. You're the next person. Um, and that means that you have to identify small goals and small wins. 
some small goals are you're missing a stoplight or a stop sign on the corner and kids in the community have been hit. Well, I don't have anything to do with that. But I can push for that with them. Have that happen. And it did happen. And once it happened, people went, oh, she's not full of baloney. (laughs) I have a colorful language, so I'm really working on it. (laughs) I don't know if we have a bleeping system for the podcast, but it's okay. No, it's good. but okay, it worked. So we now have a stop sign. So now what, what can what's we next? do? What's next? You know, I'm, I'm sitting here listening, thinking about the experiences that I've, I've had in communities as well. And when you get involved and you make relationships, now it's, sure. now it's about, and that's what community is, as you've acknowledged, it's the relationships. What happens when you move on to your next project? How, how, do, what's that tra- how do you make that transition? Because I'm thinking in my mind, two and a half years, you know these people, they know you, Very well. your lives are connected. But Still at, some, are. at some point, your role, in sure. the, that formal role, will end, you'll move on to the next project, you've achieved what you've been there sure. to do. How do you make that transition? What do you do to prepare for it? And how do you make sure that they don't feel like, well, we knew it, another She's one gone. came and left? Well. It's hard. You know, I always talk about the work I'm doing and the role that I need to play within the scope of building community. But I have to be honest with you, I I don't lose those connections because it's a it's a real thing. I have students, I have neighbors from that community that, you know, with this age of technology, email me, follow me on Instagram, I follow them back. Um, one of the young men, I wasn't running a um, after-school program, but they just kept showing up, and I would <laughs> beg them to go home. Um, just graduated from college, and I, I got an invitation. I stay connected to people because I think How many that's years what's important. Oh, God, now it's been seven or eight. Wow. And I still stay connected. I I visit often. I mean, I, I'm really proud to go to San Francisco and go into that community and see that I left something that's standing, that's in use. Um, That's my legacy and I enjoy that. I want to see that kid I told that they could go to college graduate from college. That was sincere. I mean, I think that's the other thing. As people get to know me as a community builder, I am sincere about the work. I sincerely want to see it happen. And I'm the first person to get angry when it doesn't. I'm the first person to be at the meeting standing up saying to that civic leader, you promised me this and you didn't do it. And the community sees me do that. So I walk away, I think, from a neighborhood with leaving them with the best of me, uh, continuing to support them in what it is they're doing um, and have some integrity about it. I'm not just a, a, a mouthpiece. You know, I, I do silly things, you know, here in, in Skid Row. Um, you know, not just the clients that are in our building, but the people that are in the community. They see me every morning. I say good morning. I ask people's names. I shake their hands. Um, it's the holidays. So, I walk out and talk to people. So des- describe your, your commute to work. Uh, it's less than five minutes. 
by car or by foot? Um, it's I do both. Okay. Um, I love to walk to work just because having been in the Bay Area for so long, where you walk, what a foreign concept in Los <laughs> Angeles, but we're getting back there. Absolutely. Um, I really enjoy walking to work and seeing the same people over and over again and getting to know them. But it depends on the day and what I have to do. I can take an Uber, and it's literally not even five minutes away. So if you're walking, what mm -hmm. the, just walk us through a, a, what would be a typical, typical uh, morning. walk. A typical walk. What's that experience? Because you're not living on Skid Row, but it's no. Skid, Skid Row, I mean, you're in the I live in the, the garment district. Okay. I live right next to the flower mart. So um, there are so many business owners that are right along my walk um, who've been in this city for many, many years. Um, who are small business owners. I say good morning to each of them. I always say hello. I walk through the Flower District, which is not a bad thing to do in the morning. Um, and I hit the corner of 7th and San Pedro, and the community changes. And is that the boundary for what would uh, defi quote define Skid Row? Because it's a hard place I, to you know, quote I define. I don't think there's a, it, it's defined any longer. Okay. I would definitely say um, a decade ago, it was very much confined to, let's say, San Pedro, where we are, um, all the way to Alameda, and then you have the Arts District, and then you have on the on that side, and then on this side, you have sort of um, the historic core and the garment district right. and flowers. Um, it's moving, it's growing. I mean, I think people who are sleeping in their tents don't want to be in the middle of chaos. Mm -hmm. They want peace and quiet. And so that's why what's happening in the core. That's what's happening, so why wouldn't you move to a place that's quieter, where people don't see you. So I don't think there's boundaries okay. anymore. But you see a change at 7th and... At 7th and, 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 and San Pedro. And actually, 7th and Julian, to okay. be exact. You you see a change. But I passed the, the, the fire department. I love those guys. The Skid Row Nine are... are um, defenders and caretakers of, of the community to a great degree, and so I always stop and speak with them. Uh, and then I see the same people in their tents, and they see me. I largely have to walk in the middle of the street because you can't walk on the sidewalk, um, but I talk to the people that are in their places. I treat folks with respect. I say good morning. They now see me every morning. I ask how they're doing. Um, they see me in the community walking my dog and they'll say, where's your dog? Or how's that going? Um, they'll even say, hey, Tanya, the guy down the street there's having a bad moment. Why don't you walk the other way? Um, they, they protect me. So you've built a relationship. <clears throat> I've built relationships, but <clears throat> it's very simple. We were all raised that when you pass someone on the street, you look them in the eye and you acknowledge them. It's as simple as that. People want to be acknowledged. They're not invisible. And I find that if I look you in the eye and say good morning, or if I have to walk in the middle of the street, excuse me, sir, pardon me, ma'am, I'm showing individuals respect, they turn around and say, oh, you look lovely today, or how are you, or good morning. It's just common courtesy. It's, there's no recipe. We already all learned this. But I think we just forget. You know, I think we, we walk around in our little worlds with our phones and we're not looking up. And I think that's a shame because I think you make, you create community by being in it. Absolutely. And you got to be in it. And I just like to be in it. So let's talk a little bit about the Weingart Center. Mm -hmm. So uh, you've been here since 2016. Yes. And you're 
basically operations guru. You have to run, <laughs> run the show. I, I like to say that, that your work- With a it, lot of really amazing uh, oh, people. Oh, totally. Yeah. <laughs> so let's talk about the, how, how big is it as an organization, staff, service, sure. clients? So we have uh, 187 employees. Uh, full-time and part-time. Mm -hmm. It's a mix of that. Um, our building across the street is 12 stories, the El Rey Hotel, formerly the El Rey Hotel. Um, we can house up to 623 individuals. At that one site? At the one site. We are not a shelter. We are a transitional housing facility. So um, there are rooms. We may have a couple of dorms here and there, but largely it's um, one room or two people in a room. Um, bathrooms, showers, all the things you need, the laundry are all there. And in addition to those sort of basic things, we have clinical services. So we have case managers that are on site that are there to help you move out of whatever is keeping you from being successful. Um, if it's a mental health issue, we have clinicians. If it's workforce development, we have individuals who do that. We have an entire staff that focus on helping you get the records you need and documents so that you can go back to work, giving you the proper tools, whether it's resume writing or getting on a computer or doing those kinds of things. And then we have folks that go out and work with job seekers all over and we place people in employment. We have a full service kitchen and we serve some 300,000 meals a year. So is that just for your 600 residents, approximately the 600 cafe. residents? All those services you've described are just for the, the residents within that? Um, well, I would say that we have an access center so people can come okay. in off the street. Um, and our goal, if you walk in and you want to be off the street, our team will get you a bed, get you in, get you settled. We'll figure out how that's going to get paid for or where you're going <laughs> to end up later. But that's the first step. And once that person walks through the door and says, I, I want to get off the street, our team makes sure that they're stable, they've got a hot meal, and we start to talk about what do you want to do, right. and what do you need, and we go from there. And it's a transitional supportive, I mean, it's traditional Absolutely. supportive housing, if I can call it that. Yes. Uh, with those wraparound services, yes. right? All those right terms. How, what's the duration of stay? What's the range? I mean, it are people here for a week program. and some people are here for two years? I mean, is that... Um, um, the, the, one of our contracts can go up to a year to okay. two years, um, but it really depends. We have contracts with multiple organizations. So we work with the Office of Reentry, so individuals coming right out of incarceration. We work with the Department of Health Services. So um, we have folks that are coming in through their Department of Mental Health. Um, we have substance abuse programs. It just depends. Um, if you've been referred by an agency to us, that usually determines the length of time. But I think what we know and those agencies know is that it takes a different amount of time for everyone. So we have great partnerships. If an individual's stay, to, um, to use that term, is up, but they're not ready. Right. Our case managers get on the phone and make that phone call. And we've never had a situation, because I do know that the city and all of its agencies are really focused on this, where anyone says, no, you have to put them out. Right, right. And even if they did, and they don't, we wouldn't do that. <laughs> right. Because our goal is to get you in, and it may take a couple of times. So to your point, you may come in, you may stay a week and say, I don't want to be here. Go back out on the street. As many times as it takes, you're welcome. 
You're welcome to stay, you're welcome to come in, you leave, you come back, we're gonna greet you with open arms and we're gonna say, all right, let's get down to business. What do you wanna do? And so that's what's happening here in the Skid Row community. Sure. But you're not limited to Skid Row, is it? No. So no, tell no, us no, about sort growing. of the organization as it relates to the region or wherever you are. Sure. Well, as you mentioned, the, the, the problem is throughout our city, right. it's not just in Skid Row. Um, and I think the mayors acknowledge that and we know that. Um, one of the things that we do at the Weingart Center is ultimately try and help people get housing. Housing means you're not homeless. Um, and there isn't enough of it. And so the Weingart Center decided to start with property that we own that's next to the facility by building permanent supportive housing. And we will be building three projects here in Skid Row, right around the property we own, but we've branched out. So we will be building supportive housing in um, kind of the Westwood, sort of Santa Monica area. Um, we've done bridge housing, which is um, a little bit of a lengthier stay. These are individuals who are connected and waiting for their housing, but still need a place to go in um, West Hollywood area, like right off of Sunset. Um, we are working in the South LA area on Broadway. Um, we are going after it all. I mean, we, you know, I, I we're competitive and, and I. <laughs> we are or you are? I mean, I am. I hear a little. Uh, but I say we in the sense that the Weingart Center and, and, and our leader, uh, Senator Kevin Murray, um, we know there's a need out there. And for more than going on 36 years, um, we have expertly understood this issue and been working through this issue, have resources to bear that we think are important to share, uh, not just in Skid Row, um, and that's what we're doing. So we are growing. Um, we decided to go into permanent supportive housing because 623 people across the street, as well as all of the folks that are on the street here, need housing. And there isn't enough of it. So how many? You have six hundred transitional beds. Yes, six hundred twenty-three. Six twenty-three. Mm -hmm. What's your what's your uh, permanent supportive that you're building? How many units are you looking at? Wow. So here uh, in the Skid Row area, it'll end up being around seven hundred units of wow. permanent supportive housing, uh, and then outside of that, I'd say we are well about to hit somewhere around a thousand twelve hundred units outside or included combined. Oh, combined. Mm -hmm. That's that's amazing. I mean. It's both amazing that you're able to do that and also amazing that that's what we need, right? That's and, exactly and, and what it's we just, need. And it's, yeah. But it's just a drop in the bucket for what is needed in this city. Absolutely. If you look at the population of this community outside your 623, how many people are living on the streets? What's the estimate for the Skid Row area? I think we're talking in the thousands. I mean, I hear numbers that uh, just in this particular area alone, I've heard anywhere from 5,000 to 7,000 people. Yeah. Um, you know, I think that's... That could be accurate. It's it's sort of hard to know. Right. Um, not everyone is standing outside saying, "Hey, count me." Right. Um, <laughs> so so I think that that's you know that's all. There's always going to be that margin of error, but I'd say anywhere between five and seven thousand individuals. And so if you look at that and you look at the the thousand units you're going to twelve hundred units you're going to bring online in the next couple of years, because I know that permitting and construction sure it just takes, it takes time. Some time. Mm -hmm. What's the plan? Do you have a plan to say, okay, we're going to get those 1,200 and then the idea is we'll just keep going? Do we just keep going until everybody has a house? What's the vision? I think that's our board of directors and um, our leadership are looking at right now. Where, where does the Weingart Center go? Right. Um, and we're having those conversations. Do we become permanent supportive housing developers? Uh, 
do we, you know, I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I know that there's a need and there's a need not just for permanent supportive housing, but for the transitional housing that we provide. Um, I'm a firm believer that people need um, coaching and they need skills to be able to be successful in housing, whether it's our permanent supportive housing or affordable housing or anywhere else. When someone has been living on the streets a year, 10 years, some people 20 years, you have to figure out how to be a good neighbor again. You have to figure out what a new definition of community is. And so transitional housing, which is much needed that we currently provide, helps you get those skills. Because the last thing we want to see is someone move into permanent supportive housing and not be ready and return to the streets. So I don't know where the Weingart Center goes because I think there's a place for all the things that we do. Um, and maybe we just keep going. Maybe we stop. I mean, that's that's up for debate. Right. Um, and I think at this particular point, our board gave us a mandate. We we're in our third year of our strategic plan, which was we wanted to expand. We want to be meaningful um, in the middle of a major crisis. That was loud and clear. And how were we going to do that? We were going to expand programs. So Bridge Housing in um, West Hollywood is a perfect example of that. Um, we were going to build permanent supportive housing, and we are well on the road to doing that. And we were going to figure out how we could make an impact in this crisis. And that's what we're doing. Where, where that ends, I don't know. Till the crisis is over, we won't. Till the right? crisis is over. I, I tell people all the time, I would be happy to be out of a job at some point. Um, I love what I do but I see this as a, an issue that we all have to look at and there isn't one way to fix it. There are multiple things. So how do you, just acknowledge that, mm -hmm. how do you partner with other organizations as a large, I mean, you're one of the leading organizations in Skid Row in the city on homelessness issues, yes. on housing issues. How do you find the right partners that don't uh, either uh, distract you from your core or don't feel like they're just coming along with you, that they're actually a partner, an equal player in the work sure. that you're trying to do. How do you, how do you develop those kind of partnerships, whether it's with government, for-profit endeavors, <coughs> or other nonprofit service providers? Well, I mean, I think, again, it goes back to the same way you build community. Um, it's conversation. It's, you know, there are um, organizations that have a very different approach to homelessness. Um, I don't think there, as I've said, is any one right answer. Um, I can disagree with a process, but at the core still understand that we are all working towards ending this crisis. Um, when there's an opportunity, we know who um, are our allies in a particular project, if you will. So we work with Chrysalis. They're a service provider, they do workforce development, they also do our housekeeping. Makes sense. Many of the clients that they serve are living in our housing and many of the folks that they get working again once lived at the Weingart Center. That's a synergy. There will be opportunities. We pick up the phone, call each other and say, hey, what do you think about this idea? Does it work? Does it not work? You in, you not in. We go back and we'll say, you know, here's the opportunity. What does this do for us? Does this stretch us thin? Does this take us off our core focus? Um, 
is it worth it? You know, is there enough, what is, as they say, is there enough juice in that berry? Do we want to do, do we want to do this? Right. And then if we're going to do it, then you do it the same way you build community. You sit down and say, okay, what part of this do you take? What part of it do I take? How do we jointly represent each other? Right. Um, where are the areas that you stay out of my backyard and I'll stay out of yours? Um, it's all about conversation. I mean, I think ultimately everything comes down to that. It comes down to just talking to people. Um, and we do that. We definitely get opportunities that our partners like Chrysalis or others will bring to the table that we're like, yeah, no, we're not into that right now. No harm, no foul. We wish you well, we'll support you, we'll, you know, cheer you on. Um, and then there are opportunities where it's like, we should really do this together because the combined power of our organizations can really make an impact. Um, and that's kind of how we do it. This has been a tremendous <laughs> conversation about community from your personal perspective, from the organizational yeah. perspective, and I probably could talk to you for another two to three hours if we really dug into each of the nuggets that I wrote down on my sheet about all the things you're doing and the approaches that you have. Um, I want to ask you now just one final question before we go to our lightning round. Yes, right? I've heard about the lightning round. The lightning round, round is yes. coming. <laughs> um, when you look at this three-decade-plus career that you've had, is there a point in your career where you ex had an experience, positive or negative, mm -hmm. that then changed the way you dealt with community there out and that you still apply today? Absolutely. Um, I was working for uh, LA's Best after school program, I was the liaison between LAUSD and the mayor's office. And under which mayor? Under Mayor Reardon. Okay. Uh, I went into the community of Venice to the school to create um, a talent show. And all over the city there would be talent shows and the winners of each talent show would perform at uh, during the LA Marathon at the end when they come through City Hall. And I was very rigid in my thinking about exactly what needed to happen in each talent show. And so I went to the one in Venice after working with the after school staff there and the teachers and had this very direct plan about what was going to happen and none of it did. And the kids were doing something completely different and the teachers were all doing something completely different. And I was livid. And I was 25, 26 at the time. I was so angry. And I got in my car and talked to the guy first. And I was, you know, this is not what I asked you to do. And this is not what was supposed to happen. And got in my car and called my boss at the time was a woman by the name of Carla Sanger. And I said, it just was a mess. It was terrible. They didn't do what they were supposed to do. And she said, was the community there? And I said, well, yes. How many people? I said, like 200. She said, really? Were the kids laughing and having fun? Yes, but that's beside the point. She said, were the parents engaged? I said, absolutely. She said, then what's the problem? That's community. It's not what you think it's supposed to be. It's what they think it's supposed to be. Hugely embarrassed. Felt like an idiot. She was absolutely right. And I've used that in every single community I've gone into, it is not my definition of community. It's not my story I bring to the table. It's their story. So I became, 
I started to not take myself so seriously, which is my other thing <laughs> that I learned. Um, and I learned to relax. And the idea is there, at the end of the day, if you get people coming together, it doesn't matter what the details were. In fact, all the agendas I created and the sign-in sheets, no one ever saw those. No one cared about them. It was my stuff. But that community was just so um, empowered. And actually, as a result, th there were three little girls who performed um, at that school uh, as the Supremes, and I, I can see it in my brain, and they won. And one of the best days of my life was standing in front of City Hall on this dais with these three little girls who were singing their hearts out and performing, and people were crying because they were just so amazing. And I thought, I should really never forget this and never go into a community again and think I know what they need. Um, I think that's my moment. Wow. Well, thank you for sharing that personal sure. moment with us. It's, sure. That's great. So let me, let's go to our lightning round. Just a short, short simple answer. Okay. We're, don't think about it too much, um, and we'll get right into it. Who is a leader who has influenced you in your work? My father, Edward Boykin, um, was a builder in this, in this city and very much influenced me. And the second is my mentor, Jane Graff. She's CEO of, the, of Mercy Housing. What book has changed the way you think about the role of community in your work? Pedagogy of the Oppressed. What is the most accessible yet impactful way an Angelino can help fight against this homelessness crisis? Have the conversations. What's the first place you turn to for information when working with a new community? The neighbors who live there. What local restaurant do you always bring friends to when they visit downtown LA? Taroni. Favorite <laughs> place. <laughs> what advice would you give 25-year-old you? Oh, shut up and listen. <laughs> What's the best career decision you ever made? Coming back to Los Angeles. And so far, what has been your proudest professional moment? Handing a young woman and her daughter keys to their first home. Great. Thank you, Tanya, so much for spending some time with us and sharing. Thanks for listening to Community Intelligence, and for more information on this and other episodes, visit our website at stratoscope.com. At Stratoscope, we provide community intelligence services to businesses, nonprofits, and government agencies. Let us know how we can help you.